Well, hello there. Welcome to On the Beat, the podcast that uncovers full frontal male nudity in cinema. My name is Laura, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ryan. Oh, hello. Oh, boy. Is that your tone just going into this movie? Because it's like, oofed. I mean, to be fair, it's like it's like walking into a, a deep, dark void <laughs> going into this film. Yeah, so I get kind it. Of, we've survived it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did. I gotta be honest, it was... The build-up to watching it was worse than actually watching it, so that's something, because I think I was warned so many times about how rough this movie can be. Yeah. And then we watched it, and I think maybe that prepared me, maybe over-prepared me for what I was going to see. Yeah. I guess, because we're, we're, we're going to give the title of the film, and I think... I'll get there eventually. Be, yeah, I think people will be relatively quite excited to hear us talk about this film, to be fair, because it's, it's, it's one of those... It's kind of like, it's one of those... It's one of the most famous dick flicks, I think, out there. Yes. Infamous, yeah. perhaps. And also kind of, and it's it's strange, and it's this shot, this shot that we're talking about for this particular film is probably one of my favorite shots in any film. Is it fucked up that I want a gif of it so I could just like randomly send it to you when I'm not having a good day so you know how I feel? I feel like Paris... Well, no, if you're just sending it to me. Yeah, just that's you. Fine. Right. I do kind of feel personally that's a little bit exploitative, <laughs> but um, yeah, if you're only sending it to me and I fully understand it, then okay. yes, that would be fine. I'll get on that immediately. But maybe maybe we should let the listening audience, I mean, they've already clicked on it. They probably already know what it is. Yeah, I mean, the episode already, titles are the film titles. And we tell them all a week in advance if they follow us properly. Because yeah, if you don't, sh- then that's your fault. Yeah, well, that's one more thing that you can add to your to-do list today, everybody. The film we are going to discuss today is the 1992 neo-noir, I don't want to call it a crime, neo-noir drama. Mm, It's, I'd say, yeah, I'd say it's a... Crime drama. That's crime in it. There's crime, there's like one of the pivotal moments in the movie is a horrific crime. (laughs) Bad, (laughs) bad lieutenant. Yeah. Bad Lieutenant. Bad Lieutenant. Uh, starring Harvey Keitel and mm-hmm. directed by Abel Ferrara. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So take it away, Rye. Yeah, we can talk a little bit about Abel. I do like I do like Abel stuff. I do like Abel Ferrara's stuff. I've probably mentioned Abel Ferrara in one of the other episodes. I think we were talking about home improvement. Oh god. And uh <laughs> Why you, does that come up so much? I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of like I want to say like the six degrees of, uh, you know, of um, of home improvement. But you were talking about D- Taylor Thomas or whatever his Jonathan name Taylor is. Thomas, JTT. Yeah. And obviously, like, you know, you don't really, really ever want to get into a massive conversation about, about Tim Allen. Um, well, certainly, if we ever wanted to ever discuss his books... Tim Allen's books. We don't do books on this podcast. Are eye opening. Well, no. I think one of them's called like, like never, never stand next next to a naked man or something like that. I think it's what it's called. We were talking about um, uh, using power drills and stuff like that. Oh, and how it makes you feel. And you didn't believe me. There's a film out there called called Driller, Driller Killer. Killer. Yeah. yeah, and that actually was showing recently at the local cinema, and I didn't go watch it, but then. It just all came around that this is real. This is a real thing. Yes. That's awesome. Yes. yes. So 100% it is real. 
and it was directed by Abel Ferreira. Now, technically, Driller Killer is, let's say, his second debut as a director. I thought it was his um, first, but you, you would know better than me. Well, the thing is, is like, he directs a movie called The Nine Lives of Wet Pussy, and it's a porno, but he directs it under a pseudonym. Uh, I think the pseudonym is Jimmy Boy uh, L. <laughs> so um there's a there's a line and I got this I got this from Wikipedia whether or not it's true or not but 100% this film exists. It's a 70, 70 minute porno also stars his then girlfriend at the time and one of his quotes is saying uh it's bad enough paying a guy 200 bucks to fuck your girlfriend then he can't get it up. So there's actually a scene where Abel Ferreira has sex with his then girlfriend on camera. In the movie. Whoa. Yeah, this man has lived a life. So, um, let's just say, like, he's more known for, let's say, provocative, somewhat controversial, neo-noir, gritty urban, uh, like, set films. Um, yeah. Yeah. In, in, a, in, a, in a slight way, I would say he's... He reminds me a bit of, like, Akinji Fukasaku... And his like Yakuza movies, and then I kind of go even further into that in terms of like the level of the tone. I think about kind of Takeshi Miike's slightly more earlier stuff, like middle stuff. I mean, that guy's made like over probably like fucking over 150 films. So let's just say, <laughs> let's just say, once he gets into the double digits, that kind of period of his of his filmmaking. Um, but yeah, I would say. That's what we know Abel Ferreira for. So in terms of like his filmography, he made a bunch of shorts. Driller Killer comes out in 1979. Uh, 81 is a movie called Miss 45, which I'm still yet to see, but I think it's pretty much like you would recognize it if you kind of saw it because it's the woman dressed as a nun. I think she was like abused or or, or uh, attacked as a youngster and then she seeks, seeks out revenge for... Right. Um, and those are the type of movies, if it just straight up is like rape, revenge, I'm mm. usually not interested. Mm-hmm. I don't want to watch them. And I, I, I shy away. I just don't want to deal with that in my day-to-day life. Yeah, I guess maybe because as I've gotten older, like you, you start to be a little bit more aware of like where your morality stands and stuff like that. Because I think as a young filmmaker, I was probably more interested in slightly more controversial and like extreme forms of storytelling i suppose like for a turn and i mean i don't know you've read some of my stuff and things and the things i like to write and things and i guess yes and i I guess like i guess like i'm like i think this is actually pretty good and it's like this is fucking horrible i have said that to you before yeah. yeah you've said certain things but we're all we're all aiming for our own things in life and uh to figure out like to finish up um, the the filmography aspects of it. Uh, in '84, he makes Fear City, which we saw recently. The Tom we Berenger, did. yeah, Tom Berenger, Melanie I liked Griffith that movie. movie. It's got Billy D. Williams in it as well. Um, yeah, yeah, that movie's got that fantastic fight scene at the end of it. Where I he think just, like beats the shit out the the kung fu murderer. Yes, yes, yeah. and I think that movie is on is one on one of the streaming. So if you we anyone wants on, to watch it, we watched it on Prime. I think so it is on can, Prime. It's it's well has worth has an incredible cover. Yeah, it's well worth watching. I think That's I think, also on Crackle. 
Because we, we watched... Well, the thing is, like, this was completely unrelated, but we watched another movie called Strip to Kill, which is effectively the exact same plot <gasps> yeah, it is. of Fear City. Because if nobody knows, like, Fear City was a story about um, Tom Berenger, can't remember his sidekick, but basically they have a, an agency, they look after strippers who work in the strip clubs in New York. And for whatever reason, there's a dude going around uh, attacking and murdering the uh, the strippers and basically just putting the putting the fear into them pretty much but yeah strip to kill is pretty much the exact same story so after fear city he makes the gladiator he makes crime story he makes another film called china girl another film called the loner and another film called cat chaser a lot of these are kind of made for tv or like tv show pilots um that are screening only on tv okay but in 1990 his next feature film effort is one of my personal favorites, which is King of New York, um, the Christopher Walken movie. I mean, there's a lot of people in that movie. I think it's like Wesley Snipes is in that movie. David Caruso's in that fucking movie. It's very much a kind of gangsters versus cops uh, sort of foray. Um, and it's a gritty crime drama, and we all know how much I like those. You sure do. Yes. And I like that movie as well. I saw that when I worked at Hollywood Video. I kind of went through the entire drama section and just watched as many crime and mob type of films that I could and went through all of them. Yeah. So I I saw that back in the day. remember picking up the special edition DVD of that movie. That movie's movie's real good. I just didn't, you know, you don't expect Christopher Walken on the front of something like that for some reason. I would wholeheartedly expect him on the front of something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because not only that, he's a, Christopher Walken also is in his other film, The Funeral. And that is primarily probably one of the reasons why Christopher Walken plays the character he plays in True Romance. I was about to say that. That Scott, so that works for me. Yeah, because he's very scary. In he's that. got yeah, he's got a presence about him. So after King of New York, we then have in '92, Bad Lieutenant, Bahari Keitel. Here we go. What's uh, what is the film about? What is the synopsis? The letterboxed synopsis is, while investigating a young nun's rape, a corrupt New York City police detective with a serious drug and gambling addiction tries to change his ways and find forgiveness. Okay. That works for me, actually. Yeah, that's 100% spot on. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean... We're going to talk about particular scenes and stuff. I mean, if like you hear that synopsis, that is effectively what... That's the beginning, the middle, and the end of this happens. film. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, like, his... The gambling... The gambling aspect... Because it's between, like, this the playoffs with the Mets and the Dodgers. Like, this, this seven-game playoff that he's the, betting money on. It's the World on. Series, right? It's the World Series, yeah. So this is what... This is probably one of the only things, other than this... The, the, the crime with the nun being raped is the only thing that pushes the elements of the story forward. Or at least it gives us this sense of something's happened and something continues to happen and here's the conclusion to these two these two instances. Right. right. So like at least the gambling thing and the the World Series is escalating. It drives it forward, effectively. Yeah. Because everything else... 
it, the, the rest of the film is a collection of scenes and moments that highlight how fucking horrible either he is as a person or the world that he is inhabiting and how fucking hellish it is. Is it weird that there's part of me that wants to say he's not really that terrible? No, because I feel like at least by its conclusion, or at least his like his character arc, let's say, yeah, is that he does gain like a level of redemption. Yeah, it just really depends, like how you personally feel if he deserves any level of redemption. You know what I mean? Well, it's also that kind of Christian Catholic sense of forgiveness mm. in religion, where you can be a fuck up and be a horrible person a horrible piece of shit and do horrible things to yourself and others for yeah. your entire life you and as long as you yeah. show remorse you can at atone point, on your deathbed if you want yeah to. absolutely yeah. Oh, which is which ridiculous. is essentially what happens and what yeah. happens with with the criminals in this film well, in a the, way yeah but the problem is is like it's it, it's your reward for bad behavior is and i just it's something that just i'll never be able to wrap my fucking head around oh yeah but that's religion yeah but it's it's his like his his dissension like his 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 escalation his uh i guess like him him just like he's just like his choices bull, yeah his choice like bulldozing through fucking life like it is fascinating yeah like where it goes um oh i can give you the tagline as well which is kind of obvious fuck yeah gambler thief junkie killer cop yeah i like that tagline yeah is he a killer he didn't kill anybody. No. Just himself, in a way. Yeah. They, I mean, they could have cut that out, because it's it's maybe one word Gambler, for thief, too long. junkie, cop. Cop, yeah. Yeah, it probably would have sounded better. I would say, like, Bad Lieutenant is probably his best known, but I wouldn't say that Bad Lieutenant is his best film. Yeah, it's it's certainly quite shocking, or it can be, and probably certainly was to audiences back in 1992. Yeah. You know, but I think he tried to mitigate the shock based on the poster. Because mm. the original poster is Harvey Keitel full-blown naked yeah. with the words Bad Lieutenant yeah. covering the whole thing. You mm -hmm. know, it is his privates are in shadow. Yeah. But I mean... You've seen updated photos and cover art for Bad Lieutenant, which makes it look like a cop procedural, which it is certainly not. It is not, no. And, it's very far from it. And it's weird that they are, I don't know, they're trying to get like a different kind of audience for this movie based on the cover art, so. Well, the thing is, is like, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's genreless, but it, it kind of skates very fine lines between genres. It's definitely a drama yeah. The thing is, is like it falls under the crime, the crime arena purely on the basis that we're focused very much on a lieutenant and crimes start happening. That's not primarily the focus because what bad lieutenant effectively is, because Harvey Keitel's character doesn't have a name. He's just referred to as the lieutenant. It's just a character study. It's a meditation on guilt for the most part. Guilt, redemption... Attempted redemption. I mean, this is a, a basically 10 days of this, the end of someone's life. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And like he's, he's, I mean, it's painfully obvious, like this kind of the spiral that's, that he's been traveling down has been going on far, far longer 
probably years for the most part um, than the sh- the short amount of time that we we see him depicted in the film. So I mean, we get to see a full on rock bottom. Yeah, like that's like the main thing, and we'll talk about tone and things regarding this film. But like, there's very few films that I feel like genuinely encapsulate that tone or at least that look of utter desolation. Yeah, and I fucking love it. It for drips it. with despair. Yeah, like <laughs> it really does. It's kind of like, like if you think about you know the depictions of hell and like what hell would be like and things because it's un it's an unfathomable concept right but to believe in hell you also have to believe in heaven and then there's some level of like you know believing in a higher power and all this sort of crap which i don't really do well he does you know? he's well, catholic he does i'm thinking about myself right okay and I'm thinking about like the depictions in the film and things. And and, and if you ever let your mind kind of wander, I kind of feel like when Kaitel's character is just traveling deeper and darker oh, into, yeah. these, into these places that I'm like, that's kind of what, that's kind of what, like an endless stairwell. He's, you know? he's digging his own grave. Every yeah. single day, he digs a little mm-hmm. bit deeper. And it's almost like he wants to get to the bottom. He wants it to end. Yes. He's so miserable. And yeah. he just is just piling on trouble after trouble, you know, just to, he just wants it to be over. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Harvey Keitel plays the lieutenant. Who else is in this movie? I, I wrote them down, but we didn't really meet anybody else other than uh, Zoe. No. Who's played by Zoe Lund, who's also the... I have some notes about her. Well, I'll, she's the main star of Miss 45. She is indeed. Yes. And she also co-wrote the screenplay of this film. Oh, shit. Do you, okay. And Frankie Thorne plays the nun. That's the only people I, were, I was going to bring up, but let me... Tell you about Zoe. There are some like in, like there's some interesting side characters of of like the cops, relatively recognizable names. They just they don't have really any part in what's happening. Victor here. Argo plays one of the cops, and I yes. know that he's a he's a frequent um, actor in Abel's films. Yeah. So yeah. and Paul Calderon. Yeah. But I don't. Yeah. They, but, they but play, for the sake of this film, to no consequence. It is a it is a full on. Harvey train right. tooting through this movie. Yes. No one else really gets much screen yeah. time. Next up, cocaine. <laughs> cocaine city. Oh, it's like crack city. I mean, because there is a full on crack epidemic happening in New York yeah, at this time. We're gonna be, yeah, we're gonna be going through a lot of like not really kind of the things, but like it all kind of falls into the the controversial aspects of this film. Like very specifically, is a lot of the a lot of the drug use. So. Speaking of drug use, let me tell you about Zoe Lund. (laughs) So she is credited as a co-writer of the screenplay with Abel Ferrara. Yeah. But she also said that she wrote the screenplay alone and that Abel had very little to do with it and was not very involved. Okay. And she also said that she co-directed several scenes. She said that, that Ferrara didn't contribute much to the screenplay at all. Okay. She's she's got a bit of an anger inside of her for whatever reason. Okay. Um thing is like let's be perfectly honest, Abel Ferrer's already kind of cut his treads like with quite a few films. So I've got like if he made I mean if he if he had every single hand he had to make in King of New York, like 
she can see what the fuck she wants, really. Well, I didn't know this, but she's basically an unapologetic heroin addict, or was, because mm. she died. Oh, well, that's a shame. She died from heart failure at the age of 37. I can only... Well, that's one year off us. I know. I mean, I can only assume that the drug scenes in Bad Lieutenant are all 100% real. Well... Certainly on her, her end. Well, they did actually shoot up, but it was a, a saline solution. Same that, that they did in Train Spotting. Same okay. type of thing. They did physically use a needle. She's like, we could have used a retractable needle, but we wanted it to be real and long and arduous and difficult to watch. So that's why they right. just held on those shots for so, so long. That's and also, you see that no yeah. needle going in and you're like, Jesus That's Christ. also the main, the main issue I feel like the film has with the ratings board is because of how... We'll get, yeah, I think we'll get into the style, but let's just continue onward. Well, she, uh, Zoe Lewis had an extended relationship with cocaine for a really long time. And when she had moved to Paris, right. she kind of got off the brown and into the more, back into the white. But it was her heart failed because of extended cocaine use in her life. But she was just adamantly in love with heroin and didn't give a shit. She constantly was advocating for drug rights. Mm. in the states um yeah for recreational use but i mean no one's gonna say yeah we definitely should legalize heroin anyway abel ferrara uh had been a dr taking drugs at least since he was a teenager mm -hmm. and he was taking drugs all throughout the filming of this movie okay and most of his films he okay. was on drugs for most of his films to be fair he's not the first uh prominent film director to have known to have taken drugs. I mean, certainly the seven, if the 70s was anything <laughs> to go by, um, everyone, everyone who was making films back then had old, some level of, some level of uh, habit. Old Marty. Mar Scorsese. Well, Scorsese is the, is probably the most famous one. The poster I, child for cocaine use. Yeah. Well, the thing is, <laughs> we all know, well, we all know what happened there. I mean, he made, he, he got clean and he made Raging Bull, you know, um, but I would also kind of point out that like probably the more prominent one would be Sam Peckinpah and there's loads of fucking stories of, of his, uh, of his, like, he, he smoked weed a lot. He used to drink on set. He used to have a gun. He used to brandish a, a gun on set. I Who was this? Sam Peckinpah. Who, what is his, tell me what, what has he done? What do I, what would I know from him? Well, I mean, most, most notably he made, uh, he made the wild bunch. I haven't seen that. Is okay. that a Western? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He made like hyper-violent, hyper-violent uh, movies. I mean, he made Cross of Iron. He made nope. Convoy. Nope. He made Convoy's on uh, streaming. That's okay. Nah, it's a good movie. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that also in the desert? No, it's Chris Christopherson in a, in a, in a semi traveling across the ground. He's on the Convoy thing. Convoy. Yeah, there you go. It's got its own fucking song. He wrote the Is song. that from that movie? Fuck yeah, it's from that movie. Chris Christopherson wrote the song. He did the song for Convoy. Really? Yeah. Okay, I'll watch that. He made a movie called Bring Me the Head and Michaela Estrada. Okay. Yeah, that's the one where... Maybe... Because they, they rip that, they rip that moment. Direct, Quentin Tarantino rips the... He's like talking to the head that's inside the car, like in the box. And oh. he's like driving on the car. Yeah, yeah. like Tarantino just stole that from... Uh, Ugh. Stole that for uh, Kill Bill, or I think I think it was Kill Bill. One, maybe, of, one of his other shit films. Maybe Convoy will be my second favorite 
semi-truck movie. Yeah. But, I mean, he made, After Over the Top. He made that... <laughs> Yeah, he did that. He did that. <laughs> Billy, he did the Billy the Kid movie as well. Uh, okay, I haven't seen it. He's like he's more known for making westerns, but he had like he had like prominent problems with like alcohol and drugs. He was a live wire. He was mental, absolutely fucking. Mental. Other than you, I only have one other friend that really likes westerns, and maybe she'll be into the Wild Bunch. That's fine. I mean, I like all films. That's the difference. You know, mm. you're just like you got your blinkers on, and you're just like, like it's too. There's penis. too much. Sand. I like the penis only, and and romantic comedies and all the other sort of trash that I can't really sit through. Wow, you're you just wow. like calling me out. <laughs> That's not true. I? You called me out just earlier, and you're what? Because like, you like desert films. What's wrong with a good desert film? It's just too sandy. Do you have a problem with the proposition that movie's a desert movie? Then you'll That's have got a, Guy Pearce in it. Guy Pearce and Ray Winston, yeah. Ooh, I've seen that. It's a good fucking movie. It's fine, but I don't want to watch it again. Music by Nick Cave. What, do you not like Dune? Yeah. Right, well, there you go then. So you do like desert movies. Anyway, you like The Mummy. The Mummy's like one of your favorite films oh, ever. Oh, shit, I do yeah, love The Mummy. what are you talking about? The Mummy's get, so good. We need to get back on. We <laughs> do. <laughs> so we need to get back on track. Um, so we've, we've, we've established the key players. Oh, hold on. Um, oh, wait, sorry. I didn't even finish my quote from oh, Ferrara. He said about this film, mm-hmm. the director of that film needed to be using the director and the writer, not the actors. He said it in that way. Just it's so kind of for, awkward. Oh, so for, 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 bad, for lieutenant. bad Lieutenant. So the writer, which was Zoe, who was a lover of heroin and, yeah. and Abel. Okay. So they were both using and... They said that Kaitel was not using, but I think Kaitel had been into drugs in the past. Well, again, like he and came... this was kind of like a cath- yeah. almost like a cathartic thing for well, him. Again, like this was, yeah, this was more. It's like you know he's a mainstay of Scorsese's movies and stuff like that. Kaitel, like I mean, it, it it's again like I see anybody who survived the seventies kind of coming in and still making movies. They're coming out a little like a, with, a, with a fair amount of baggage. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. I don't feel like you can get yourself into the system without kind of coming out with some level of like fuck uppery kind of happening. Well, and uh, Kaitel and he'd been, I don't think he was married to, but he was in a really long term relationship with Lorraine Bracco. And they had just got Lorraine Bracco. No idea who she is. Karen. Oh, got you. Good fellas. Yeah. Yeah. She's in a million things. She's in your favorite movie, Hackers. So uh, he had been going through a, a long kind of tough breakup with her and so mm. that, during this movie so maybe that kind of helped him put it all out on the line okay because this is okay. a very intense he exposes himself in more ways than one in this movie in every single way yeah it's rough anyway it's kind of yeah Oof. yeah i guess like how you feel about harvey Keitel's performance in this movie really kind of dictates whether or not you like this movie i feel yeah yeah because he is, he is, he is, primarily, he's the only reason to be watching this film, for the most part. Yeah. And if you can get past some of the stomach-churning stuff he does in the film, then I think, yeah, I think it's perfectly, I think it's, yeah, I think it's perfectly balanced in it. And and I think you would, let's say, let's say, inadvertent, inadvertent quote, like, enjoy it, let's say. There's so many things in this movie that will make you, 
or at least made me uncomfortable that mm. I ended up laughing because it's so ridiculous and it's so awful. Yeah. And it's the only way to make myself feel comfortable <laughs> is to yeah. just laugh about it. That's why, I mean, this was, this was kind of like this choice for this film. We were going to have to cover it. But I mean, I pre-warned you beforehand because you'd never seen it before. Yeah, I can't, I cannot believe I haven't seen this movie. And I mean, I've obviously seen the Nicolas Cage, Bad Lieutenant, Port of, Port of Call, New Orleans. Yeah, it's a very different beast. <laughs> no, it has nothing to do with this. Yeah, but, it's a very different But thing. I saw that movie and I thought I'd seen this movie. You know, there's, there's yeah. images of this movie that are so vivid and that kind of stick with you. Whether or not you've yeah. actually seen it, you would recognize these shots. And a lot no, of, I haven't seen it yeah, until a lot of, recently. I would like I would agree with you in that regard, like because I think we're not really going to talk too much about the plot because there's there isn't too much of one. It's kind of more we're going to be examining things that you guys you guys have probably if you've seen the movie like immediately stick out in your head like particular scenes, but it's it's kind of more of a best bits. Yeah, I guess it's going to be more of an examination of like its tone and like what it's trying to do. And do you remember in the beginning of the movie, very beginning of the movie, where? He picks up his kids because they lo- uh, forgot the bus, or they missed the bus to school. Well, yeah, they're at home, and he basically has to drive them to school. Yes. Yeah. And the kids are in the car. They're listening to the baseball game. Mm-hmm. He is yelling at his kids, basically telling the kids to, like, disregard their aunt because she's in the bathroom for too long, like, yeah. showing a blatant disregard for other people and women especially. Yeah. <laughs> And then when he drops him off at school, he's just doing bumps of coke. Yeah. He doesn't even move. You can see, like, the rosary beads hanging from his rearview mirror. Yeah. It's like the shadow of the crucifix on his face as he's just doing blow yep. in his car. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's really funny. Yeah. Like, it really set off the movie in a strange way for me. Because well, I loved is, like, that part. It was hilarious. If there's ever, like, a, like if there's ever a, a dull moment in the movie, he's usually just like necking into some some cocaine yeah yeah he's just like getting it done you know what i mean because the first 20 minutes of this movie are quite the roller coaster it's really and we were talking about this last night it's so front loaded with yeah. chaos utter chaos all of the things that you remember or at least what what characterizes bad lieutenant as a movie is all within the first say 20 or 30 minutes yeah so what happens after that 30 minutes, though, is I wouldn't say like it becomes it becomes a, a victim of its length or anything like that. But because all the stuff is so front loaded, you're expecting things to either escalate or become become something else in the second half of the movie. But really kind of what they establish is a kind of level of status quo. Where... Like slower, kind of darker, more methodical, and more sad. Yeah, let's I think. just yeah, because again, this isn't really a film with a with an elaborate story. It's just it's a character study. Front loaded into the beginning of the film is what I think is the best part of the movie. Mm. And <laughs> this is the this is the dick scene. Oh, right. Okay. At 11 minutes and 48 seconds. So right in the beginning of the movie, we're mm-hmm. just getting to know this character. And then you get to know pretty much everything you need to know about him from from one shot. From one single shot, I think you kind of get to know him. Mm-hmm. Like, 
the dick shot that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Because we're into the dick scene. Because um, we've already like established like he's betting on the he's be, he's betting on the World Series. He's like not very nice to these kids. He's not very nice about like people in general. He goes to a crime scene. He's very kind of. He seems fairly professional-ish. Like he, he's very kind of yeah muted. He seems like there's a there seems to be like a respect for him. I think he's been on the job for such a long fucking time that like, and this is the thing. And I mean, I guess like I wrote I wrote scenes like this for when I was you know when I was doing the cop show, is that the crime is one thing like dealing with the crime and dealing with that because that's your job. You can quite easily separate yourself from that situation to just kind of talk about your normal life i mean i remember writing a scene for and it's all true you write a scene there was a the the couple of coppers were waiting for a for the mortuary truck to come over to pick the body up in this room and they're just sitting in the room talking about what they did the day before in full view of a of a dead body that's just lying on a bed yeah you know like it's just something that it's just something that you normalize yourself to uh, an everyday daily situation. So yeah, you, yeah, it's like disassociating from the the horror. Yeah. So I mean, for the most part, he's he he's dealing with. I mean, there's just murders of people getting killed in cars, and that seems to happen quite a few times within the course of the movie. That's true. Yeah. I didn't and even think about that. It's a foreshadowing to what happens. Yeah, those two girls were murdered the in the car. Yes. Hmm. So those two girls were murdered in the car. That's interesting. And then it kind of happens again. And that's when he, that was the other scene where he was like, you know, stash those drugs, but he dropped them. That, thing. that was very funny. Yes. That cracked me up. Yeah, there was a, it was like a car was pulled over. Was there, was there a dead body in that car? Uh, Potentially. And he's just digging through the car looking for drugs. Also, well, I think it's also a car. It was a car that I think he noticed when he was on the phone making bets. Because there was that dude who was going from car to car, opening up bonnets and things like that. And, and like taking stuff out of the bonnet yeah. and stuff in the car. Either way. Um, well, he found a gigantic bag of cocaine in, in this car that yeah. was part of a crime scene. And he grabs it and, and really, not elegantly, shoves it into his the front of his coat then he steps out of the back seat of the car and drops the coke on the floor looks yeah. around the cops are looking at him the detectives are looking at him he goes put it in evidence yeah <laughs> oh i laughed so hard yeah. oh that was so funny i'm like you fucking idiot he's probably high as hell when is he sober no in every scene he's doing something yeah he's doing something he's just like ooh. yeah <laughs> this big old bag so but let's get yeah. back to the dick scene yeah Wow, that was a bear. Sorry. So, <laughs> so the scene, the scene kind of starts. It starts with a couple that we don't know. A couple of ladies. I think it's a dude and a lady. Really? Yeah, I think it's a dude and a lady. Cool. All right. Yeah, it's kind of like a, an, an androgynous man. I think is the other lady that you think it is. I love that. Yeah. Um. So they're on the bed. They're kind of doing things to each other. They're going to go in sexy dance. Either. They're doing sexy stuff. And uh, he's just sitting in a chair with like a bottle of vodka. He has a bottle of vodka in his right hand yeah. and a glass in his left hand. Mm-hmm. And he pours the vodka into the cup and he's kind of reclined in this chair. Yeah. Leans back, takes a little glance at the cup, then just pours the vodka into his mouth. Yeah. So he's chugging the vodka out of the bottle while holding the cup of vodka. Yeah. And then he just spills it all over his face. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Topless. He's not wearing a shirt. Yeah. So funny. Because I'm trying to remember the order. It's probably not supposed to be funny. I'm trying to remember what... 
to me, like, <laughs> you you were the only one laughing. I mean, because <laughs> you're watching it and you're just like, holy fuck. So I'm trying to remember, like, the order of the shots as well. But I Oh, think I do remember. So after that, I think, is when like they the, dance. The hugging slow dance thing. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's like, oh. See, I love it. Absolutely she, the, love the, it. The woman's wearing saggy underwear, which you know that I hate. Very saggy white underwear, but hey, she's, look, she's topless. Did you, you saw the stick of the, the, you know, the absolute state of the place they're living in, though. Yeah, it was awful. Like, oh, it was fucking I grim. just don't like saggy underwear. Oh, it makes so me very grim. uncomfortable. But it's like the house itself has a permanent vignette. Like, it's so dark <laughs> in some of the corners. So unbelievably dark. Yeah, but they're having a weird slow dance, and the androgynous human whoever they are comes over and dances with them yeah and they're kind of doing a slow dance Mm -hmm. and from what i remember right after that is the dick shot yeah it's probably like it's not my it's my favorite film it's my favorite like shot in this film but it's maybe like one of my favorite shots in any film like it's so so good so good and i'm not watching it and looking at it and being like it's i mean it's incredibly fucked up but it's just incredibly uh exposing yeah yeah i mean we talk about penises in film Mm -hmm. penises in cinema and how they usually will be there to reflect something happening within the character so yeah. or, or happening to the character. Mm-hmm. So we have in 28 Days Later, Killian Murphy laying there, and, and it's a vulnerability thing. And I think the same yeah. thing is happening here, yeah. where he's just shedding everything that he has and just exposing himself fully, and he's completely vulnerable, and he's mm-hmm. completely miserable. Mm-hmm. And it is... Well, there's like a mirror behind him... Um... His arms are outstretched. He's got the cross. He's got a cross necklace like around his neck, mm. and he's effectively sobbing. Yeah. 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 Because like is. that shot, that shot reminds me of the opening of Apocalypse Now, when oh. Martin, yeah, when Martin Sheen is drinking in that hotel room, and he goes mental, and he he punches the he punches the uh the mirror okay because that whole scene's completely like martin sheen's actually drunk they were in that room for like 12 hours oh and he punches the mirror cuts his hand he rolls over he's naked i don't know if we see his dick or anything in apocalypse now but he's naked and he just starts crying his hands like cut and bleeding blood everywhere wow and i kind of i look at that and i'm like okay that's fine. I look at Path Lieutenant and I'm like, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just, it just, it's, it's, like, if you didn't know what you were in for, that shot 100% tells you what you're in for. It's like, if you can't take this, this level of, say, character, actor, vulnerability. Yeah. Because... If you can't take that, then there are some there are some things that are gonna happen. Yeah. Where yeah. you're like, okay, maybe this isn't for me. Like, maybe I should just stop watching. <laughs> yeah, whittling out the ones that can't take it. Yeah, because like, I kind of 
like I think about you know because I'll talk. I'm going to talk about a little bit about extreme cinema, um, and just kind of how how far films can sometimes go to get and elicit you know responses out of people. Because certainly, you know, I think I might have mentioned this before, but certainly George Lucas probably said it best, where he's like, if you ever want to get an emotional response out of an audience, just chuck a bunch of chuck a bunch of kittens and puppies into a bag and then beat the bag that's how you oh my god that's how you elicit an emotional response out of your audience he's like it's not hard so is kaitel like our bag of kittens and puppies i mean we're just beating him up yes i mean it's 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 the sort of like it's the sort of behavior that 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 in a role that just kind of like it starts to blur the lines between you're not just playing a part like how much of yourself is put into a role yeah you know what i mean it's kind of how how far do you take a moment like that and as a, as yourself as a filmmaker when do you know when to say cut like when do you know when enough is enough like how far do you take it well that's what they wanted to do with this particular film i guess i mean i kind of say it more in general yeah and i think i think it's kind of like like where does the practice say like outweigh the performance like where like how far do you go it's always something that's always going to fascinate me from from talking from filmmaker to filmmaker to filmmaker Mm -hmm. like why does stanley kubrick need to take 127 shots of jack nicholson walking up a set of stairs towards you know Shelley Duvall like why does he need to do that and why does William Friedkin go all right I'm good one take yeah we don't want to do it again nope moving on and why do they both work yeah why are they both yeah so like I I like this I like from say you go from that extreme to this other extreme like where does the practice come back in from when the performance you feel like the performance is there so I feel like this is why I like this shot. And this is why I like where this goes. And it's why I'm like, oh, I talk about like Apocalypse Now in that moment with Martin Sheen. And then I talk about this. Right. And I just feel like this, for me personally, it nails it and it requires a level of analysis. And this is kind of one of the reasons why I feel like this is, the, this is one of the films and one of the moments where I feel like this podcast is totally deserving of its existence is because of (laughs) is because of moments just like this because it wholeheartedly convinces you that the only way that we fully understand what's happening to this character that you know Kaitel is portraying right is that he has to do this in this frame this way you know I wholeheartedly agree with you yeah you know you've heard me argue about those torso mid shots and how you're not you know you kind of feel like you're missing out on something and that would ruin this movie if you had kind of like a mid shot torso you know what I mean of him if, of him just crying and sobbing and and swinging back and forth naked and you don't I mean like you need everything you need the shot that it has because yeah. the shot that you, you get is perfect I've jumped from film to film to film being like justify why you're putting a dick in it all right right 
And sometimes I agree with it, and other times I don't, right? Let's just put it that way. Hmm. Um, but I always agree with it. I know, but in this instance, like the amount of impact you get from seeing this full visage is fully justified, in my opinion, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because he can't justify the things that he does later on in the movie if we don't have, like, this level of, of like, bare, naked... Um, like character analysis. I feel like it would all be a lot more cruel and less sad. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I would agree. It would look just villainous. Yeah. You know, rather than desperate, mm-hmm. which it still is villainous and and horrible. Yeah. But but yeah, this kind of gives you what you need to understand him. Or yeah. or, or yeah. to understand where he's at maybe mm-hmm. is more appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that's the poster of the film. Is that shot that? Yeah, raw... I mean there's a reason. There's a reason why. Yeah, you know, it's the re- I mean it's one of the reasons why. I mean we're looking at just getting the poster for the for the office space. You know I know. What I, mean? I do want it. And I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, why don't we have that already? Um, yeah, maybe next time we do a wee beat. Yeah. So. There's there's really one other scene in particular that jumps out to me as being memorable and perhaps seared into my brain Mm. uh, is the scene where he walks up there's two young girls in a car car is parked and he asks them for their license and registration Mm -hmm. which they do not have and it's kind of a funny like oh haha yes sorry we don't have it and then he keeps questioning them and he becomes more and more uh not angry but more like tougher every single time he asks them a question and more frightening to me. And, oh, you don't have your license. Why not? Oh, is this even your car? And they're just joking around going like, hey, man, this come is on. like This is like the longest scene in the entire film Yeah, as well. And certainly you can feel it as it continues and it escalates. You kind of already have seen Kaitel uh, do some questionable things. Absolutely, every you know, scene. He's like he's let a couple of kids go from a robbery. He's pocketed the money himself. He's let himself to some of the shopkeeps belonging. I mean, we've seen like him shoot that. up, or no? He he freebased some heroin. He steal he freebasing, he, yeah. Taking drugs, selling mm-hmm. evidence, drugs to drug dealers. Yes. So yes. I mean, he's <laughs> questionable things are happening. Several here, yeah, without any sort of level of like either purpose or kind of level of recourse it's kind of almost as if like this is just this is just the way the system is it's like opportunistic on his part yeah like anytime he finds an opportunity to do something yeah that he i don't know i don't want to say benefits him necessarily well, the thing is, but is like, it's it's his motivations and like the things that motivate him is like you can't really put it down to simple things like he likes to have sex so that's why he's doing it he likes to make money because that's why he's doing it. It's kind of all all kind of predicated upon like how much darker can this character go and how kind of how more fucked up can it get? You know what yeah, I mean? Almost like he's testing the limits of how how deep and dark he can get before yeah. it does bottom out. Mm-hmm. Which is what I think he's doing. Maybe he is just testing the limits. Is there a God? What where is my redemption? Where where yeah. Where does my sin end or begin? Mm-hmm. And, you know, because he's constantly struggling with, like, his faith. Yeah. Because that's a huge part of this yeah. one as well. You know, wh- 
it happens later in the movie where he's yelling at a, a vision of Jesus, mm. a crucified Jesus, yeah. screaming, where are you? Where were you? Where that's were another, you? That's another really cool shot in the movie as well. You know? Um, so... Because, like, he spends a long time, like, certainly, I think, when he has, like, moments of clarity where he's, like, he realizes either what he's done or what he's doing. It's, like, you know, the classic Hyvie Keitel uh, pain scream. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's another time where I started like, laughing. Because there is, like... I mean, I, I, I know he does it in other films because Reservoir Dogs is also... Do you think there's a supercut somewhere, maybe on YouTube? Of Harvey Keitel's Pain Screams. Yeah. Probably. Okay. Probably. Well. But like when he gets super upset in Reservoir Dogs, I think it's when Tim Roth tells him that he's uh, an undercover cop. He oh. does that. He does the exact same thing. So it's a Harvey Keitel thing. Um, that's that's uh, that's uh, he's got that in the in the gamut. But I like I would say, and I mean, you know, I think I think you guys should watch the movie. I would say the story or at least the plot or like his character changes is when the nun uh, is raped and he's, I don't know if he's so much entrusted with the case, but it's not so much that like we ever at any point see him solving crimes. He's committing more crimes than he's solving. Let's put that that way. Yeah. But like when the nun gets raped, it puts, it's such a shockwave through the community because again, I guess like my level of understanding with that idea, like, is that you know, as a family, your family, you go to church, you have your pastor, you know, you've got your your confessional and things, you know, something like that, something horribly and tragic like that happens, you know, it's like happening on your doorstep. Well, and they're also just what I would consider to be a protected entity. Your priests, well, mm -hmm. whatever about the priests, mm -hmm. fuck that, but your nuns. Yeah, are a protected just even people who aren't religious can't imagine why would someone want to hurt a nun? Why would someone want to hurt something so pure? Yeah, they've done nothing wrong. Yeah, you know, done and they're wrong. only there to help uh, other people. Yeah. So yeah, it's quite quite the scandal, quite the horror. Yeah, and it's it is grounded in uh, in real like real situations that have happened in the time as well. So yeah, that happened in Spanish Harlem in New York yeah. a few years before they filmed so, this movie. You know, so yeah, it's unfathomable. Yeah. Absolutely disgusting. But yeah, I mean, we, we didn't finish talking about that memorable scene either. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. He, he has the underage girls. They're kind of, fairly jovial about the situation apparently they had well, taken their father's car taking their father's car they haven't Jersey. got a license they're 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 young they're, they're underage age. and to kind of truncate it a little bit harvey Keitel basically asks them what they would do to get away with this and effectively what happens i do something for you you have to do something for me yeah effectively harvey Keitel is when my mouth my jaw drops yeah. you were watching me while we were watching the scene and yeah. my mouth is agape going uh, yeah. like how bad is this gonna be oh yeah it gets really bad i mean um, <laughs> <laughs> i mean, hate I, to say it could have been worse yeah. but let's say this happened to someone in real life yeah traumatized forever no that's what when you were talking about how cops or firefighters and people in films that have those jobs mm -hmm. you know they tend to just be their jobs and that's all they are mm -hmm. and when you grow up at least when i was growing up 
you are, it is ingrained within you to trust the police and trust your authority figures. And if you're in trouble, call the police. If you see a police officer, like you can trust them, they can take you home. And imagine for these girls who are in this car and they have this police officer and Mm. they think that they're safe. And that's the last thing that they are. And he's sexualizing these very young girls. Mm. And it is hideous. Well, it ends with him masturbating on their car door. He has the one girl bend over and show him her ass. I was going to get to like, I'm sure. I'm going to tell. I'm going to say it. Yeah. And then he has a girl kind of like uh, replicate what her mouth would look like if she was given a blowjob. It's so horrible. And then yeah. he's just he's just beating it on the side of the car, <laughs> saying horrible things to this probably 15 year old girl. And yeah. it, it, I. That's another scene where you just, I started laughing because I was so uncomfortable. Yeah. It is, that was a very shocking scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his sweaty face, oh, it was nightmarish. Yeah, and then he just walks off. <laughs> just walks just zips away. up and walks away. Walks away, yeah. It's like, oh. These poor girls. And that scene goes on forever. Yeah, it's a very long scene. Very, very, very long, long scene. Very long scene. I mean, for me, the the only other scene that I really wanted to touch on was when he ends up going to speak to the nun mm. um, who was raped and is unhinged. Mm. He looks he he looks horrible. His hair mm. is a mess. He's very wet, very sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> and he just like and he's so tired and he just tries well, to get on the that, ground um, to kneel next to her and there's front also of that moment where he goes to the church the night before he ends up probably sleeping there and the next thing is like the crime scenes there and they're like investigating that he just wakes up and he comes out from one of the one of the pews that he was sleeping behind and it's like all right back to work i don't even remember that <laughs> yeah no that's like yeah. oh my god yeah but uh, wow. I guess, like, I mean, he's like he like as a character in conflict, he's trying to figure out why this nun just will not name name the boys who assaulted her. She knows so who they that, are, knows who they what they look like. She knows yeah, them because they're part of the community. So yeah, yeah. they they live across the street. Right, so the community even know like the community know who the fuck they are. Um, so it's not so much a case of like. Like, they're not able to arrest them. It's more that, like, the nun, for for better or worse, her faith is preventing her from taking action on it. She has forgiven them, therefore she yeah. won't press charges. Pretty much, yeah. And I think that she... I feel like there... Isn't there well, a Harvey point where Keitel she... Well, Harvey won't stand for it. No. I, and I think she was said... I feel like at one point in the movie she said that she felt bad because she couldn't help them. Like, you know, there's, you know, uh, they were doing this horrible thing. Yeah. And even though she forgives them, she she feels like she committed a sin for not helping them. Yeah. You know, and not showing them the way. Pretty much, yeah. Like, their last resort was to, was to sexually assault her. Yeah. It's... It's mind it's mind boggling stuff. Yeah, and it's, for him, yeah. you know, as a police officer who with some sort of moral code within, he just doesn't understand why because he also feels, which I can understand, that you're letting these two boys back out on the street who have committed yeah. this horrible crime and what is stopping them? They yeah. basically got away with one of the most Im- unimaginable crimes 
known to humankind and got off scot-free. No charges whatsoever. And what's going to happen next? What's going to happen? And he said, you're not the only nun in the world. You're not the only woman in the world. Yeah. What is stopping them from doing this again? Mm -hmm. You are the only person that can stop this. And she's just like, you know, essentially you need to find God. Do you even believe in God? Mm. Which is tough. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. Lieutenant obviously does believe in God, even to the point where he does meet Jesus and calls him a rat fuck. Um, He does. Yeah. He does. That's a really, really long scene of sobbing. There's several in this film. Mm -hmm. And this is by far the longest. Yeah. It is. It's it's another really tough thing to watch. Yeah. But like, I think, you know, we've... I think we've tried to, I guess, like, get across a sense of the flavor of this film. I think, (laughs) like... Ew. Yeah, I guess. Tastes like sweat. It's kind of like, I mean, like I thought, like this film, this film will be forever imprinted on the pantheons of like extreme cinema history. You know what I mean? Like it's up there with a bunch of like Lars von Trier movies. It's up there with like Takeshi Miki films and all the video nasties that you want to, that you want to talk about. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I watched this film and it reminds me a lot of, of, like I said, Miki's stuff. It reminds me of, very specifically of his remake of Kinji Fukasaku's Graveyard of Honor, which kind of follows a very similar sort of style. It's very simplistic stylistically, I yes. feel. Because a lot of the scenes are one shot. Yeah. You see you see a character traveling to this location, then it's pretty much just one shot, like a two shot. And I guess like that's where that's where personally I feel like because the film never cuts away, it's always very barefaced. The film never cuts away or cuts away or uses a cutaway to kind of get away from things. I feel like that's where a lot of the controversy kind of comes in is that it it feels like a lot of the drug use, because it, it drags on for quite a fair amount, looks instructional. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of, say, where the UK has the issue. And I feel like, well, in Ireland, it's slightly different because of the, the, the they have more issues with, say, the rape of the nun. Fair than enough. else. And I don't know if that film is still banned or not in Ireland. I don't know if that film will ever be ever be uh ever be accepted by the Irish film board. Um I would say not. Probably not. You can understand that. But uh yeah, I guess like I mean, there are varying versions of this film. I think I was quite you know, for want of a better word, lucky that I have I think I have the four three UK DVD version, which was the only version that was available to me, obviously, to buy. Mm-hmm. It's 96 or 97 minutes long. Yes. Pretty much, I think that's the uncut version. Yes. Other streamed versions or versions that we've found here in the US are 91 minutes. So stuff has been taken out for obvious reasons. Right. And and I think that's really interesting because uh, Ferrara wanted this to be an NC-17, which I guess in the UK is an 18. Okay, okay. Yeah, so... so. But he, he wanted... He specifically wanted this movie to be an NC-17 just so he wouldn't have to deal with any restrictions. He had a lot more mm. freedom. He goes, I don't care. This is going to be an NC-17 because this is yeah. what I want my movie to be. I don't want I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Because he knew 
what was going to happen. And he, wrote, he wrote the goddamn script, or at least well, he says he did. Yeah, um, <laughs> he, yeah. I mean, it was definitely a co-writer situation. But w- the only reason that we have, at least in the United States, an R-rated version is because of the video rental world, blockbusters, your Hollywood videos. Yeah. Uh, they did not carry NC-17 films. And it was just something with the companies themselves. Mm. So they requested if they wanted this film to be available to rent for people right. in their stores, uh-huh. that they had to make an R-rated version. So huh. Abel Ferrara had to make an R-rated version and cut out scenes. And he actually had, he cut, had to cut out so many scenes. And he had to go to the cutting room floor, essentially, and put in more scenes mm. to make it a feature length amount of time. Right, okay. For Blockbuster and Hollywood yeah. Video. Yeah, so I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm thankful. I think the version we have is, because that's the thing, I've never seen the film in widescreen if it was shot widescreen. Oh. I've only seen it 4-3. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. So I don't know, I don't know how different the film is because it's very, you see it in 4-3 and again, you're watching a 4-3 uh, format film on a obviously a sixteen nine TV, but the blackboard is on the side. Yeah. It's very much like you're looking through a, a small window. Hmm. You know, so it, it always gives you that it gives you it gives you kind of a sense of the isolationist and the kind of very constrictive sense of the world. Because like when he goes to see that drug dealer, I forgot to bring this up, like the wallpaper there's even wallpaper on the fucking door. Like, it's the same wallpaper. Oh, uh, when he goes to see Zoe. Yeah. His heroin dealer. Yeah, that's some of the most um, claustrophobic stuff, I think, in the film. Yeah. Because, like, a lot of of it's characterized by the use of the shadows and things like that. That's a very kind of bright space. But, like, I'd immediately walk into a space like that. I'd be like, I need to leave because I can't fucking deal with it. He shot a lot of the scenes, at least the shots of Harvey, very wide just to kind of show that isolation that he had. So oh. a lot of a lot of his shots is you know his nude scene, okay. his nude shot, and uh, you know a lot of the scenes of him taking drugs, or when he was in Zoe's house with the wallpaper, he's kind of alone. Yeah. For a lot of it, I mean, mm-hmm. she's there, but a lot of times she just steps away, and you just see him alone, yeah. just constantly alone. I like yeah, I like that stuff. Yeah, it all kind of makes sense. You're really gonna get that across. But like a lot of a lot of this, like a lot of the the scenarios, a lot of the locations and things like that, nightmarish, absolutely nightmarish, and how they look and how they are and what they're doing. Like I find, yeah, I find that there's a yeah, there's a massive amount of like the use of the production design and stuff to get across that tone. That I think's very, very effective. And you um, also have that very gritty New York, and the New York at the time was, as I mentioned before, going through an epidemic of like crack. Yeah, yeah. Crack I mean, exploded. Yeah. They were making jokes in the commentary about just going up to certain areas where they were filming, just stepping on bags of crack. I mean, this is pro- obviously... Which like, I think was probably a joke. Okay. I mean... <laughs> Maybe. I guess, like, New York's going through, like, has gone through quite a massive amount of change. But I'm trying to figure out, like, who it was that kind of came in. Because I hear a lot about, like, Giuliani was the mayor of New York. A lot of people say, like, these are pre-Giuliani days. Okay. So perhaps, you know, perhaps he's yeah. too... He's responsible. For that, that's, I mean, that's what I read. That's what I hear. You know, yeah. he's primarily the reason why New York is cleaned up to 
gentrified no yeah but i mean like i think about i think about like how how new york's depicted in the 70s um i think about like taxi driver and stuff like that because oh, this yeah. is my only interaction with that city is just how it is depicted in in cinema you yeah know? fair enough because you've got like that depiction and then you've got like once upon a time in america where it's fucking beautiful right it just so looks fresh. it looks amazing well it's not fresh but like you there's a like the way that you know uh Sergio Leone is able to kind of look at a place like mm. that you know and he puts his puts that fucking western edge on it I would say there's plenty of filmmakers over the time that have created have created different visions of what New York is because I feel like it's such an elaborate and colorful palette say from like your Spike Lee to you know, your Scorsese. Because it's also a personal look at how you view the city and what they're so, it's so large as well. So you yeah. have so many different boroughs and districts and areas. It's a giant framework of, of culture. So depending and, on what yeah. you use New York for mm-hmm. or what your experience is, yeah. then, you know, that is available to you to have so many different perspectives on the yeah. city. Yeah. No, I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like, yeah, there's like, there's varying degrees, you know, because I think like there's Panic in Needle Park and stuff like that. It's another movie as well. So, um, yeah, no, I just, I like, I like the palette at which this city brings so much kind of life and difference to, to these different depictions. Yeah. You know, because very much, yeah, this, 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 the way that it's depicted here, it feels very much like a hellscape. (laughs) <laughs> so i mean i quite appreciate that yeah the way it is this isn't seinfeld <laughs> would you recommend this movie yes i would here's the thing and i mean i kind of did it to you just before we watched it as well is like brace yourself because this might not be for you yeah i thought it was going to ruin my night and so I wasn't sure. Yeah. I wasn't sure how I how mm-hmm. I wanted to watch it, what state of mind I needed to be in to watch it, and I, you know, if you're quite desensitized and you've watched a lot of cinema, and you can kind of separate yourself, like you can separate what's happening in the film from, say, real life, and not feel too kind of uh, like subjected or or like affected by it then I'm like, you're probably fine with Bad Lieutenant. I think there's just a few things. Like, you just have to stomach some quite awful, horrible behavior. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's all, like, it's all part of, like, what this film's identity is. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, when he says he's, like, when they call him a bad lieutenant, like, he's bad. Like, he's very bad. He's doing bad boy things. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And uh, yeah, he's not a very good lieutenant. That's no, it's not. That's not what the film's called. He's also not a good father. He's not a great person. No, uh, no, I don't know not. if he has any friends either. Probably not a very good friend. Probably doesn't need any friends the way he's kind of behaving. Mm. You know, he I'm thought, sure he did at one well, point. Wait, I think at one point he thought Jesus was his friend, and Jesus let him down. Ouch. So I also would recommend this movie. I was warned as you've heard and yeah it's i'm surprised i hadn't seen it before i think it's because i thought that i had but Mm. i was wrong yeah i was dead wrong and i enjoyed it i weirdly enjoyed it it is uncomfortable it is 
moving. I mean, just the fact that you really, really see Harvey Keitel just lay it all on the line, and it is hard to watch, Mm -hmm. but it's really quite intriguing. I mean, you're watching Harvey Keitel just give it everything he's got and more. He must have been exhausted. I mean, he's really going for it in this movie. And it's it's wonderful. Yeah. It's really wonderful. I would it, only say, like, and here's the main thing, I feel like the second half of the movie is is it, it, it's is worse because of how strong the first half hour is. I won't lie to you. I fall I fell asleep. It's a bit sleepy. I did fall asleep. Also because half. I warned Ryan if we put something on after nine PM I will fall asleep. And like clockwork, I did. But I also pushed to watch it. Um, mm-hmm. So that's my, that's on me. Yeah. <laughs> that's on me. But um, I did fall asleep. It's very quiet. The end of the film is so, so quiet. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's because of the music rights issues and everything that happened with that. Yeah. But that's also something that, that, that comes on board when you talk about the, the different versions of this movie as well is some of the, the, the song choices that didn't, weren't the problem of, of the movie itself, but, ended up being problems that involved Led Zeppelin having to take people to court for using samples of their they music. They had unlicensed music that they put in the film and Led was Zeppelin got mad. Unlicensed movie, was unlicensed samples from Led Zeppelin in a song that was chosen by Abel Ferrer to use in the movie okay. that they had to remove. Sure. That's the difference. Uh, I can't remember what it was called. But, Cashmere. Um, it was from Cashmere. So they wouldn't let him use Kashmir in that song, yeah. but they let P. Diddy later on use Kashmir for the fucking Godzilla song? Yes. Fuck. Not even that long after, like within a couple of years after. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. I don't know. I think which is wrong. I will, yeah, no, fuck in this that. Case. No. And anyway, Led Zeppelin had already had a pretty strong track record of like taking people to court and fucking them over because they felt like their stolen material had been stolen. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to give my my film rating, which I might actually update after this conversation, which rarely happens. Rarely we we upgrade. We almost always downgrade our ratings after yeah. watching the movies. But I gave it a three and a half last night. Mm-hmm. And after talking about it, I think going up to a four. Okay. Going up to a four for the yeah. film. Um, and I'm going to do it right now. But Good. But yeah, I think the more that we talk about it, the more I actually like it. The thing is, like, I mean, I like the fact that the film is quite stark, even though there isn't really much in the way of music. There is, there is that one track, and I'm trying to remember what it was called. It's like, uh, you've heard it, you've heard it before in like Scorsese movies and stuff like that. It's like okay. Forever My Darling, I think it's called. I'm not too sure. Okay. Very, it's like an old song, and it's kind of. It's kind of nice. Like, I mean, I quite like it because it helps to kind of set a set an underlying an underlier for like what you're seeing. Yeah. Very much a kind of juxtaposition, you know. And it's kind of you know you take the lyrics of the song and you're trying to be like, oh, how does this relate to the film and stuff like that. Anyway, but uh, yeah, I do like its stark nature. And I think last night I was gonna give it a three because I was oh. like, it was a little bit sleepy, and I was like, well, hold on. I'm like, you can't be this congratulatory of the movie talking to it now, obviously, in the hindsight, just giving it a little bit more time to breathe. Because I think the first time I saw this, years ago, fucking years ago, probably when I first bought the DVD, and now watching it now, and I'm like, you know what? Still probably deserves 
the four. I don't think I can give it any more than four. No, I don't think so. Per- personally, I because wouldn't it's either. Because it's too front-loaded. It's kind of imbalanced, I feel like, as a film in terms of its content because a lot of the stuff that happens near the end, it's just a lot of shots behind Harvey Keitel walking in locations. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And effectively ends up doing the same things where he's getting drugs from people in pretty much shots that mirror shots that have happened already true true so it's kind of just like okay like i understand what's happening here you know i just i wanted maybe some of those scenes maybe should have been written slightly differently so it didn't feel so samey but when you think about the powerhouse performance and like the way i feel about that dick shot as well yeah um you know to the point where i'm like i want a fucking poster of it on the walls like what am i even thinking about <laughs> you know and you think you think about you think about you know moments in cinema and the things that you enjoy and stuff like that you're like oh fuck yeah yeah like you know things that kind of help characterize you know yourself as an artist if that's who you are or just someone who who likes a certain tone or style of things you know i think it's quite important so i would say yeah i say it deserves it does deserve uh it does deserve a four Great. I think it's doing something. It's doing something that not a lot of other films can do effectively. So, especially I can appreciate a film that will make me think more. I won't really stop thinking about it for a while. It really does stick with you, and when you ruminate on it a little bit more, it definitely, it definitely deserves more. And I'm happy yeah. I gave it a four. Yeah. Yeah. No. What about the? The dick scene. Five. Yeah, obviously. Okay, yeah. It's a five. Yeah. It's definitely five. Like, I mean, you want to bring it down for context because he's actively sobbing, but it's so is, early days like, in the film, so I I, it like, still needs that five as well. Well, it's again, I feel like this is... Um, like, this is, a, this is a moment of the films, of the stuff that we are covering that... I'll be comparing other films too. All right. You know, I kind of feel like it's a bit more of a benchmark for me personally and like this journey that we're undertaking. So that's kind of how I feel about that. And I'll always kind of bring, I'll be more heavily on the context as opposed to, isn't it great? It's just there. I'll be like, tell me why it's there. <laughs> Fair enough. You know? I like a challenge. Because I think that's, I think that's a smarter, more common sense, analytical approach to this whole process. So. That's kind of how I feel about it. Isn't it? As All right. Well, like, this is my yeah, podcast. There's, you know, there's the candy. And listen, you know, we're going to do it how it needs to be done. Oh, I'm terrified, Laura. Please don't look at me like that. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Is there anything that we missed? Anything in your notes that you wanted to talk about? No, I don't have a lot of notes for the movie anyway. Um, what a fantastic tale of self-destruction this was. The only thing I wrote down I didn't mention is that it, uh, they shot this in 20 days. Yeah, so it took less cool. than three weeks to make this film yeah. or to shoot it. So I like that. Yeah, it doesn't. Wham yeah. bam, thank you, ma'am. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it needed that much to it, though. That's the thing. So I mean, it's like there you go. We're done in twenty days. Yeah, that's great. It's kind of like I mean, it's Luke Besson wrote uh, Leon, Leon the Professional, in less than two weeks. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, I so love it. It can be done, people, <laughs> if you know what you're doing. So. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today, as always, Ryan. Yeah. I appreciate you. Yeah, this was a goodie, this one. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Thanks again, guys. Uh, Make sure to follow us on the social medias, and 
we will see you next time. Mm. I, I've been Laura. Uh, Ryan. Ryan, thank you. And right. bye. Bye. <laughs>